Regards, and welcome to Ryan Rambles You to Rest, the podcast where I talk at length about matters of nearly no urgent need, nor heavy impact on our daily lives. In the interest of helping you there, off to a more peaceful state. In this episode, I think we will have a wiki good time by kicking things off with a particular ponder on puzzles. We talked a little about puzzles in our most recent time together, and I found it rather puzzling that after all these years my knowledge of the history of puzzles is relatively limited. Then, as we are already engrossing ourselves with knowledge brought to us via the passionate archivists and contributors on wikipedia.org, I thought it might be a dull pleasure to return to a segment we have not taken up in about a year, exploring really random topics through the random article feature on wikipedia.org. I will also kindly ask that if you appreciate this episode, or several other episodes of Ryan Rambles You to Rest, a sleep podcast, that you consider a modest donation to wikipedia.org, which survives by the generous contributions of folks like you and me, who treasure the vast wealth of human knowledge that wikipedia.org keeps at our fingertips at all times. I would also like to bid a special welcome to all of our new listening friends on YouTube podcasts who made our last visit, The Great Indoors, the first 1,000 view video on the channel. Before we begin, I would like to recommend that you subscribe to this show on your podcast platform of choice, or YouTube, and now YouTube Podcasts. For news and announcements, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ryan Rambles Pod, or follow me at Anvil1 on Twitter. Our soundtrack is by Disparition. And now for an update for listeners of this and previous episodes. I only have one update of particular shareability. We recently assembled and added to our backyard lounging area a brand new wooden bench. It has a darker stain to it than the other furniture outside, but I trust that will fade toward the gray wood aesthetic we have with the other furniture there. As you know, benches have a special place in my worldview, and historically, as a favorite topic for this podcast. If you are new to this podcast, as I recall, you may discover more of our bench times together in episodes 1, 5, and 9. 
that'll do it for the single update in this episode. Now let's move on to a particular ponder. Puzzles, I feel as though we may have agreed in some fashion, are truly among the finer of indoor activities upon which to embark when the weather around us has been sub-ideal. Here where I live, we have faced a near unrelenting regularity of unpleasant, chilly, and wet weather for many months. Although I am pleased to report that I feel as though the spell may be lifting, even though it is another cold and rainy day at the time of this recording, my instinct is not to become too hopeful. And this should not keep us in dour spirits besides. Time spent indoors can be rewarding, and few leisure activities bestow the level of satisfaction that comes with not only the completion of a puzzle, but to the myriad moments leading up to it, a series of minor realizations and tiny completions of small parts of the jigsaw. And here too I should clarify any ambiguity that I have been speaking most specifically on the topic of puzzle owing to the variety jigsaw, and not other forms. However, at the outset of our next segment, a particular ponder on puzzles, we shall zoom out ever so slightly and examine briefly the parent concept of puzzles above jigsaw. As a brief recollection to our cause, in a particular ponder we dive deeply into the details of a specific area of interest. Although this reduces the likelihood of a real roundabout ramble, as we sometimes experience elsewhere, a particular ponder does well to focus one or two things. Unlike a really random topic or the roundup, I do a little bit of scoping this out beforehand to ensure that I get only the dullest value for you. So we start now with Just Puzzle, the page about, quote, puzzle, unquote. A puzzle is a game, problem, or toy that tests a person's ingenuity or knowledge. In a puzzle, the solver is expected to put pieces together, or take them apart, in a logical way. In order to arrive at the correct or fun solution of the puzzle, there are different genres of puzzle, such as crossword puzzles, word search puzzles, number puzzles, relational puzzles, and logic puzzles. The academic study of puzzles is called enigmatology. 
Now, I do really want to click on Enigmatology because it is a hyperlink, but it does greatly concern me. That would be the beginning of a deep rabbit hole type tumble. I know that we are here to get rest, and rest and rabbit holes go together, but this one I will hesitate on. If for no other reason than because the section immediately following this one is etymology, and truly the history of how we as language users describe our world is the root of reasonable consciousness. Puzzles are often created to be a form of entertainment, but they can also arise from serious mathematical or logical problems. In such cases, their solution may be a significant contribution to mathematical research. To my taste, this paragraph sounds on the fanciful side, and particularly defiant to the premise of the puzzle. To my mind, Puzzles are created, and thus the solution would be extant prior to an individual solving. Perhaps like a Zen koan, the solving of the puzzle broadens the horizon of the solver, but it puzzles me that the solution would have a, quote, significant contribution to mathematical research, unquote. Perhaps this means the study of the solvers, a sort of mathematical Stanford prison experiment that reflects a conflict between our emotions and sense of logic. Perhaps, dear listener, this too is another avenue for us to explore at another time as we saunter hastily toward the riveting revelations surely in store in the etymology section. Etymology The Oxford English Dictionary dates the word puzzle as a verb to the end of the 16th century. Its earliest use, documented in the OED, was in a book titled The Voyage of Robert Dudley to the West Indies, 1594-95. Narrated by Captain Wyatt, by himself, and by Abraham Kendall, Master. Published circa 1595. The word later became used as a noun, first as an abstract noun, meaning the state or condition of being puzzled, and later developing the meaning of a perplexing problem. The OED's earliest clear citation in the sense of a toy that tests the player's ingenuity is from Sir Walter Scott's 1814 novel, Waverley, referring to a toy known as a, quote, reel in a bottle, 
End quote. The etymology of the verb puzzle is described by OED as unknown. Unproven hypotheses regarding its origin include an Old English word puslian, meaning pick out, and a derivation of the verb pose. I must say that this is all fascinating, besides not qualitatively informing us as to the actual etymology of the verb puzzle. OED is referenced, but perhaps it is not the best etymological source. It is also interesting that the puzzle as a toy we are dating to 1814. It makes me think there is quite a lot of information missing here, that the modern sense of puzzle is also the only sense of puzzle. There are no puzzles before 1814. Children's toys are perhaps ancient crypts with complicated ciphers leading to ancient treasure. I must apologize if this mundane on the surface topic is taking us into a sense of reality questioning possibilities. So, etymology has taken us to an interesting space, as advertised. Perhaps it is best then that we not dwell, and instead move forward, perhaps to return another time to this area. Next in this article we come to a list of genres, and basically these are categories of puzzle, and I will read of this list. Lateral thinking puzzles, also called situation puzzles. Mathematical puzzles. Sangaku, which is a geometry puzzle subset. A chess problem is a puzzle that uses chess pieces on a chessboard. I used to like to read the chess problems in the newspaper back when we had newspapers. There are mechanical puzzles, which include dexterity puzzles such as the Rubik's Cube. I'm not very good at Rubik's Cubes, but I did uh, for my partner purchase one, a grayscale Rubik's Cube, which just looks kind of cool, for Christmas this past year. Actually, it began as a regularly colored speed cube, and I had to get stickers for it. So this mechanical puzzle section has a number rather long list of subsets, and I don't need to go into all of them, 
but to note that this is where our main focus, the jigsaw puzzle, is categorized. But it also includes sliding puzzles, which I remember as a sort of tile puzzle, or sliding tile puzzles. Those were a favorite of mine when I was younger. And there is one called Tower of Hanoi, which is a mystery to me at this moment, but it sounds at the least interesting. Perhaps that's another thing we can come back to in the future. Moving on, there are meta puzzles, paper and pencil puzzles, and this is one that includes um, Sudoku. I haven't ever gotten into Sudoku in the paper and pencil form, but I have had from time to time, or at most times, a Sudoku app on my phone, and what I always like about having it there is that I don't usually spend a lot of time on it. I tend to revisit it in spurts, sometimes while traveling to pass time, because it really does make time go by. What I like about the app that I most recently used is that it has maybe four or five levels of difficulty. And what I like about the different levels of difficulty is that they are basically different games to me. Like a very easy difficulty puzzle is about solving with speed and having the, like, a, a speed-based method of seeing where the numbers go. And then on the difficult end, it's more of like a logic-solving thing. And so I find that the different levels of difficulty engage different parts of the brain, so to speak. There are also spot the difference puzzles, tour puzzles, such as a maze, word puzzles that include anagrams, ciphers, crossword puzzles, hangman, and word search puzzles, as well as tabletop and digital word puzzles, such as bananagrams, boggle, boggle's a favorite, Played lots of Boggle in the past. Scrabble, Upwards, Words with Friends, Wheel of Fortune, the U.S. game show. And I imagine you could add to this list Wordle, which has been so popular. Perhaps someone should update this article. There are also puzzle video games, tile matchmaking video games, puzzle platformers, adventure games, hidden object games, and of course, Minesweeper. Minesweeper, which used to be one of two packaged video games on PC. 
Did you know there are so many types of puzzle? I must admit that I had not thought too deeply about it before this recording, as I was focused on looking at jigsaws. And before we get to that main article, I will read the list of puzzle makers, and then this article's primer for our destination. Puzzle makers are people who make puzzles. In general terms of occupation, a puzzler is someone who composes and or solves puzzles. Some notable creators of puzzles are Emo Rubik, Sam Lloyd, Henry Dudeny, Boris Kurdemsky, David J. Bodycomb, Will Shorts, Oscar Van Deventer, Lloyd King, Martin Gardner, and Raymond Smullyan. Now, I certainly don't know anybody on there but Rubik, to be completely honest. And this list does not tell us what sort of puzzles each of these puzzle makers made. Each is hyperlinked, so one could delve further if desired. Of course, I know the name Rubik, but the other nine puzzle makers I do not recognize. Perhaps I should click into one. How about Raymond Smullyan? whose name I stumbled over. Raymond Merrill Smullyan was an American mathematician, magician, concert pianist, logician, Taoist, and philosopher. And, of course, there is an extensive article about him. That's an interesting, on-its-own resume, let's just say. I kind of want to see what makes him a magician, if I'm honest. I suppose I don't need to go very far on this article, because it says that he was born in far Rockaway, New York, and his first career was stage magic. It would also suggest that he has some background in the famous logic puzzles of knights and knaves, which is the knight who always tells the truth and the knave who always lies. Apparently he was the first to coin the name of the logic puzzle, but it seems that it may have uh, a deeper history, and me and probably many other people of my generation remember it as playing a role in the film Labyrinth, which is mentioned in this article. Well, I think that's sort of far afield enough. 
Now we can get started with our main focus. A bit of the jigsaw with history of jigsaw and other puzzles, which will be a little bit of an unamused bouche. Jigsaw puzzles are perhaps the most popular form of puzzle. Jigsaw puzzles were invented around 1760, when John Spilsbury, a British engraver and cartographer, mounted a map on a sheet of wood, which he then sawed around the outline of each individual country on the map. He then used the resulting pieces as an aid for the teaching of geography. After becoming popular among the public, this kind of teaching aid remained the primary use of jigsaw puzzles until about 1820. The largest puzzle, 40,320 pieces, is made by German game company Ravensburger, who, if you do much puzzling, you definitely know that name. The smallest puzzle ever made was created at Laser Zentrum Hanover. It is only five square millimeters, the size of a sand grain. Now, I don't mind saying that it would be nice if that particular factoid had some more information associated with it, but unfortunately it doesn't seem to have a citation. The puzzles that were first documented are riddles. In Europe, Greek mythology produced riddles like the Riddle of the Sphinx. Many riddles were produced during the Middle Ages as well. By the early 20th century, magazines and newspapers found that they could increase their readership by publishing puzzle contests, beginning with crosswords, and in modern days, Sudoku. And I feel once again as though we could add Wordle to this article. So perhaps if someone is listening that knows somebody who is interested in puzzles and editing Wikipedia, that the Wordle can be added to it, along with perhaps its many other offshoots that have become so popular, including perhaps the very addictive one that uses Wikipedia called Redactyl, and I must recommend that because it's fun. You start off with a mostly redacted article and need to guess what the topic is, and you are allowed to reveal one word at a time by guessing words in the article. And then it'll tell you, once you figure it out, how long it takes people to figure it out and how many guesses and so on. But one of the things I like about it is that you end up with a Wikipedia article to learn about. In any case, this has been enough general puzzle information. Have you learned something new about puzzles? Let me know. Now then, let's get into the jigsaw puzzle. 
the point of topic that was the initial cause for our dulcet dalliance. We will begin with the introduction. A jigsaw puzzle is a tiling puzzle that requires the assembly of often irregular shaped interlocking and mosaiced pieces, each of which typically has a portion of a picture. When assembled, the puzzle pieces produce a complete picture. Well, that seems to be the most simple explanation of jigsaw puzzles. In the 18th century, jigsaw puzzles were created by painting a picture on a flat, rectangular piece of wood, then cutting it into small pieces. Despite the name, a jigsaw was never used. John Spilsbury, a London cartographer and engraver, is credited with commercializing jigsaw puzzles around 1760. His design took world maps, as we have learned, and cut out the individual nations in order for them to be reassembled by students as a geographical teaching aid. They have since come to be made primarily of interlocking cardboard pieces, incorporating a variety of images and designs. Typical images on jigsaw puzzles include scenes from nature, buildings, and repetitive designs. Castles and mountains are common, as well as other traditional objects. However, any picture can be used. Artisan puzzle makers and companies using technologies for one-off and small print-run puzzles utilize a wide range of subject matter, including optical illusions, unusual art, and personal photographs. In addition to traditional flat two-dimensional puzzles, three-dimensional puzzles have entered large-scale production, including spherical puzzles and architectural recreations. A range of jigsaw puzzle accessories, including boards, cases, frames, and roll-up mats, have become available to assist jigsaw puzzle enthusiasts. While most assembled puzzles are disassembled for reuse, they can also be attached to a backing with adhesive and displayed as art. I have to admit that I hadn't thought much before about how there might be a market for puzzle enthusiast equipment and paraphernalia. Now I kind of want to learn more. I will say from our recent puzzle adventures that you do have to improvise a few things. In particular, how you sort your puzzle pieces at the beginning. And we've been using prep bowls from the kitchen. It might be good to have dedicated puzzle-solving equipment if you can 
afford it or think that you might spend enough time with puzzles. So that was the introduction. Now let's learn more about the history of puzzles. And it looks like we'll be getting back to John Spilsbury. John Spilsbury is believed to have produced the first jigsaw puzzle around 1760 using a marquetry saw. Early puzzles, known as dissections, were produced by mounting maps on sheets of hardwood and cutting along national boundaries, creating a puzzle useful for teaching geography. Now the third time we've been informed of this. Royal governess Lady Charlotte Finch used such dissected maps to teach the children of King George III and Queen Charlotte. Cardboard jigsaw puzzles appeared in the late 1800s, but were slow to replace wooden ones because manufacturers felt that cardboard puzzles would be perceived as low quality, and because profit margins on wood jigsaws were larger. I have a feeling that the profit margin was the primary driving factor between those two. The name Jigsaw came to be associated with the puzzle around 1880 when fret saws became the tool of choice for cutting the edges. Since fret saws are distinct from jigsaws, the name appears to be a misnomer. I will have to admit that my knowledge of saws is so limited that I wouldn't know a jigsaw from a fret saw if I saw them placed side by side. It is definitely intriguing to learn that jigsaws are not used for jigsaw puzzles and never were. I would say that this isn't the level of sense of betrayal that we shared when we learned that eggplant is a fruit and not a vegetable. But it is in the neighborhood. Jigsaw puzzles soared in popularity during the Great Depression as they provided a cheap, long-lasting, recyclable form of entertainment. It was around this time that jigsaws evolved to become more complex and appealing to adults. They were also given away in product promotions and used in advertisings, with customers completing an image of the promoted product. That seems like a relatively inefficient way to promote your product in terms of the time it generally takes to assemble a puzzle. Sales of wooden puzzles fell after World War II as improved wages led to price increases, while improvements in manufacturing processes made paperboard jigsaws 
more attractive. Demand for jigsaw puzzles saw a surge comparable to that of the Great Depression during the COVID-19 pandemic's stay-at-home orders. Well, that certainly checks out. We did have to stay indoors quite a lot during that time. Did you do a lot of jigsaw puzzles during the pandemic? Now we go into something I think is somewhat fascinating to learn about. How puzzles are made today. This section is called Modern Construction. Modern jigsaw puzzles are made of paperboard, as they are easier and cheaper to mass produce. An enlarged photograph or printed reproduction of a painting or other two-dimensional artwork is glued to cardboard, which is then fed into a press. The press forces a set of hardened steel blades of the desired pattern, called a puzzle die, through the board until fully cut. So this sounds to me like it's almost like a cookie cutter. The puzzle die is a flat board, often made from plywood, with slots cut or burned in the same shape as the knives that are used. The knives are set into the slots and covered in a compressible material, typically foam rubber, which ejects the cut puzzle pieces. So I may not be getting this fully, but it seems like there is a layer in between the backing of the puzzle die and the puzzle itself that is like more easily removed than the puzzle. The cutting process is similar to making shaped cookies with a cookie cutter. Ah, so there we go. Our instincts were correct. However, the forces involved are tremendously greater. A typical 1,000-piece puzzle requires upwards of 700 tons of force to push the die through the board. Well, well, that is an exceptional amount of force, is what it sounds like to me. 700 tons for 1,000-piece puzzle? I mean, I don't know what I would have expected, but that just seems excessive. In fairness, I don't know a whole lot about pressure and tonnage. Like, I don't know, for example, the amount of downward pressure that a human with a cookie cutter would be inputting either. So maybe that's something we can come back to as well. Regardless, though, if it is the case that 700 tons is far more than a regular person could exert, 
and of course it is, then that would mean that the modern jigsaw puzzle is only possible in modern times with modern equipment, or, you know, industrial revolution level equipment. I don't normally think of jigsaw puzzles as seeming an especially age of technology or industry type of thing because it's simple paper, but when you get down here into the details of how they're made and what they're comprised of, it kind of makes sense that the puzzle as we know it is a very recent thing. Beginning in the 1930s, jigsaw puzzles were cut using large hydraulic presses that now cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. So there you go. The precise cuts gave a snug fit, but the cost limited jigsaw puzzle production to large corporations. Recent roller press methods achieve the same results at a lower cost. Citation needed. So it's also interesting then that you wouldn't see a lot of artisan or independent level puzzle making without the help of a expensive industrialist. New technology has also enabled laser cutting of wooden or acrylic jigsaw puzzles. The advantage is that the puzzle can be custom cut to any size or shape with any number of average size of pieces. Many museums have laser cut acrylic puzzles made of some of their art so visiting children can assemble puzzles of the images on display. Acrylic pieces are very durable, waterproof, and can withstand continued use without the image degrading. Also, because the print and cut patterns are computer-based, missing pieces can easily be remade. By the early 1960s, Tower Press was the world's largest jigsaw puzzle maker. It was acquired by Waddington's in 1969. Numerous smaller-scale puzzle makers work in artisanal styles, handcrafting and hand-cutting their creations. So I guess that mentioned roller press from earlier and some of these other methods have somewhat democratized the creation of puzzles, and it is no longer as bound to the multi-hundred-thousand-dollar purchaser of a puzzle press. I think that's pretty interesting. So I wonder how much independent puzzle-making there is now if it is true that it is significantly easier. They mention hand-cutting here, but I don't quite see how hand-cutting would come into play, and there isn't a lot of information, or there isn't further information here for us to get into. Either way, it is interesting that the modern puzzle has gone through these evolutions where it was 
widespread and popular because it was cheap, but then it had to be kind of mass-produced by large companies, and then just recently it comes back to being something more widespread in creation. Definitely interesting to think about. But hopefully not too interesting. So this next section covers the many variations on the jigsaw puzzle. And I feel that in the interest of completing our journey, that I will highlight some of the interesting parts and leave it to you, dear listener, to go to wikipedia.org slash wiki slash jigsaw underscore puzzle if you wish to color the remaining variations. I'm going to stay with the focus on our more or less standard sense of jigsaw, but you should know that there are further details about family puzzles, three-dimensional puzzles, and word puzzle games. Jigsaw puzzles come in a variety of sizes. Among those marketed to adults, 300, 500, and 750-piece puzzles are considered smaller, more sophisticated, but still common puzzles come in sizes of 1,000, 1,500, 2,000, 3,000, 4,000, 5,000, 6,000, 7,500, 8,000, 9,000, 13,200, 18,000, 24,000, 32,000, and 40,000 pieces. Wow, that, that 40,000 end sounds ridiculous when you put it that way. I wonder how long it even takes to do one of those puzzles. Jigsaw puzzles geared towards children typically have many fewer pieces and are typically much larger. For very young children, puzzles with as few as four to nine large pieces, so as not to be a choking hazard, are standard. They are usually made of wood or plastic for durability and can be cleaned without damage. All of that checks out, makes sense. The most common layout for a thousand-piece puzzle is 38 pieces by 27 pieces for an actual total of 1,026 pieces. Most 500-piece puzzles are 27 by 19 pieces. 
A few puzzles are double-sided so they can be solved from either side, adding complexity, as the enthusiast must determine if they are looking at the right side of each piece. My goodness, that to me sounds like a bit of a nightmare. And I hope that if you are unconscious during this part of the episode, that you are not having a nightmare thinking about a double-sided puzzle. It is also interesting to note that the puzzles don't have the exact number of pieces from the puzzle size list. Of course we like things that have round numbers, but I'm thinking about how the boxes for puzzles always have all of the digits for the number of pieces. They're always expressed with all of the zeros, so it is a little puzzling that a 1,026-piece puzzle would be labeled on the box as a 1,000-1,000-piece puzzle. And it is interesting, too, that with so many puzzle makers that you don't see variation or a difference on that matter very often, if ever. That might be worth looking into as well. Jigsaw puzzles can vary significantly in price, depending on their complexity, number of pieces, and brand. In the U.S., children's puzzles can start around $5, while larger ones can be closer to $50. The most expensive puzzle to date was sold for $27,000 U.S. in 2005, at a charity auction for the Golden Retriever Foundation. I suppose there's another little interesting factoid for you. Tangentially related to the matter of the many variations of jigsaw puzzles. What follows now is a section about puzzle pieces that appears to be rather light on citations, so I cannot vouch for its accuracy, and will therefore, too, not spend a great deal of time pondering it particularly. However, I do find the specifics and lingo around puzzle pieces worth a mention. Many puzzles are termed, quote, fully interlocking, unquote, which means that adjacent pieces are connected so that they stay attached when one is turned. Sometimes the connection is tight enough to pick up a soft part by holding one piece. Some fully interlocking puzzles have pieces of a similar shape, with rounded tabs, called interjams, 
on opposite ends of corresponding indentations, called blanks, on the other two sides to receive the tabs. Other fully interlocking puzzles may have tabs and blanks variously arranged on each piece, but they usually have four sides, and the number of tabs and blanks thus add up to four. I think this is all sort of interesting because I didn't know that there was a fully interlocking terminology. I didn't know that the tabs were called interjams and that the indentations are called blanks. So tabs and blanks or interjams and blanks. I think if we're going to be able to talk intelligently about a subject matter, it's good to know the terminology. Also part of this section, which I find fascinating, is that there is a part which describes the process of mathematically determining the number of edge pieces in a puzzle based on its total piece count, something that puzzle solvers will do so they know how many to look for at the beginning of solving the puzzle. The section is rather heavy with the maths, and I will avoid it, but encourage you to have a gander on your own time if it intrigues you. As a novice puzzle solver, I feel a graph would do me nicely, but none has been supplied at wikipedia.org. This leads us now into a fascinating portion, which is world records. There is a list of world record holding puzzles and the number of pieces that they have. And, um, you know, being from America, it's not as helpful for visualization that the measurements of the actual puzzle size are given in square meters or centimeters. But I will say that I can communicate the specifics on at least one of these. So the top puzzle at the top of the list is called What a Wonderful World, and it's from Dowdle Folk Art, and it has 60,000 pieces. It's from 2022. And so I checked on this, and you can buy this puzzle for about $800 and it measures out to 8 feet tall and 29 feet long. Looking at the uh, square area, that's the largest puzzle in the list. However, there are some that have different, uh, slightly longer dimensions, but they all come out to being topping out around 27 to 29 feet long. And those puzzles are Travel Around Art by Graphica from 2020. There is a Untitled. The previous one was 54,000. The next is 52,110, 
with no title. It's just a collage of animals from Martin Puzzle. There is a 51,300-piece 27 Wonders from Around the World from Kodak, a 48,000-piece Around the World from Graphica, again, 42,000-piece La Vuelta al Mundo from Aducas Boras, 40,320-piece Making Mickey's Magic from Ravensburger, also 43,320-piece Memorable Disney Moments from Ravensburger, 33,600-piece Wildlife from Aduka Baras again, and then 32,000 New York City Window from Ravensburger, another 32,000 called Double Retrospect from Ravensburger. Those are about four years apart in production. And then lastly, a 24,000-piece Life, the greatest puzzle from Aduka Boris again in 2007. So that was the list of commercially available puzzles. There are a couple of big puzzle record holders. The largest sized jigsaw puzzle measured at 5,428.8 meters squared, which is 58,435 square feet, with only 21,600 pieces each measuring a Guinness World Records maximum size of 50 centimeters by 50 centimeters. It was assembled on 3 November 2002 by 777 people at the former Kai Tak Airport in Hong Kong. It seems like there should almost be a movie about that or a documentary. The jigsaw with the greatest number of pieces had, and this is something, 551,232 pieces. It measured 48 feet, 8 inches by 76 feet and 1 inch. It was assembled on 25 September 2011 at Pha Tho Indoor Stadium in Ho Chi Minh City, Vietnam by students of the University of Economics, Ho Chi Minh City. It is listed by the Guinness Book of World Records for the, quote, largest jigsaw puzzle most pieces. But as the intact jigsaw has been divided into 3,132 sections, each containing 176 pieces, which were reassembled and then connected. The claim is controversial. I suppose I can see why that would be controversial if the idea is that the puzzle was assembled in different places at different times and then brought together but it is half a million pieces as well. Hmm. The controversy makes some sense. 
Now, lastly, our particular ponder of puzzles will finish on a handful of factoids that I found interesting. This is from the section on jigsaw puzzles in society. The logo of Wikipedia is a globe made out of jigsaw pieces. The incomplete sphere symbolizes the room to add new knowledge. Citation needed. Perhaps someone from wikipedia.org can go to the section on puzzles and confirm or disconfirm whether the incomplete sphere symbolizes the room to add new knowledge. Jigsaw Puzzle, a song, sometimes spelled Jig-Saw Puzzle, is a song by the rock and roll band The Rolling Stones, featured on their 1968 album Beggar's Banquet. I like The Rolling Stones, so I thought I would include that. And then a movie one. In Citizen Kane, Susan Alexander Kane is reduced to spending her days completing jigsaws after the failure of her operatic career. After Kane's death, when Xanadu is emptied, hundreds of jigsaw puzzles are discovered in the cellar. It's been a while since I watched Citizen Kane, but now I somewhat look forward to seeing that scene again. I'm not a big fan of the movie, so I might just have to fast forward to that part. According to the Alzheimer's Society of Canada, doing jigsaw puzzles is one of many activities that can keep the brain active and may reduce the risk of Alzheimer's disease. Well, these certainly are a lot of interesting little factoids. I'm slightly surprised that there aren't more of them, given what feels like the prevalence of jigsaw puzzles in the world. And indeed, I have excluded a few of the other factoids, just to focus on the ones that I thought were most interesting. But should you be interested, there are more on the puzzle page of wikipedia.org. Well, I feel like we have substantially broadened our knowledge of the indoor activity classic the Humble Jigsaw Puzzle. I suppose it is somewhat less humble than I imagined at the outset of our journey. It's definitely interesting to think about how just about everything has a little bit of a history to it that you didn't know, that is unexpected. What do you think of jigsaw puzzles now that we have explored them? Let me know in the comments on YouTube or on Twitter at RyanRamblesPod or at Anvil1. Is anything truly random? I apologize, dear listener, for a perhaps overly philosophical musing. 
and to boot perhaps an overly playful one for our listless intentions. But I raise the question as such to avoid its resolution. Rather, to address that our persistence need not be insistent on any revelatory discovery, and can instead be mostly mild meander that the both of us enjoy. In each really random topic segment, we turn to the internet for inspiration and to randomly take us on a journey of knowledge. Generally speaking, this knowledge is not very useful. We live in an information age, but we have chosen not to be terribly curatorial on the matter, as is demonstrated when we use the random article button at wikipedia.org. Now then, let's see where this thing goes. Our first random article is Toro Delome, which I am probably mispronouncing. Toro Delome is a mountain in Catalonia, part of the Montseny Massif, with its elevation of 1,712 meters, that's 5,617 feet above sea level. It is the highest peak of the Montseny Massif. The top of the mountain is a triangulation station. There is an image on the on the page here that shows that structure. A paved road leads almost up to peak until Plana Amagada, where there is plenty of parking. The last 1,500 meters of the road are closed for motorized traffic, but open for cyclists and hikers. The final ascent of the triangulation station, some 50 meters above the endpoint of the road, is a step trail. The Toro Dalome was the site of the 1959 Trans Air Douglas Dakota accident. And interestingly enough, that is the entire article about a mountain in Spain. There are a couple of photos here. Um, the triangulation station is a, like, rectangular building with a point sticking out of it. It's basically impossible to tell from the photo how big it is, but I imagine it's something that can be seen from very far away as a, you know, on purpose. And the article doesn't mention it, but there is also a photo of a meteorological observatory at the top as well. And that observatory seems to have maybe one or two 
buildings, maybe two stories, sloped roofs, and some antenna. And then a little further off what actually kind of looks like a bunker. Um, it's down the hill, it's hard to tell. Uh, and the bunker has a small radio tower uh, next to it as well. And then the view of the, the wider view of the, of the mountain for the article uh, yeah, just looks like a pretty, uh, lightly, like a brush, brush and sand and stone. And the photo is taken at a time when the trees that there are, which are a little bit further down the slope, uh, don't have any leaves. Well, I haven't been to Catalonia and have not seen Toro Dalom in person. But I think it might be maybe a nice hike. Our second article is the 1805 Pennsylvania's 11th Congressional District Special Election. Thankfully, this is not a very long article. It consists of really just one paragraph and a chart. A special election was held in Pennsylvania's 11th Congressional District on October 8, 1805, to fill a vacancy left by the resignation of John B. Lucas before the first session of the Ninth Congress to take a position as district judge for this district of Louisiana. The winning candidate was Samuel Smith, according to the chart now, as a Democratic-Republican. He got 3,275 votes, which was good enough to get 52% of the vote in the district. There were two other candidates, James O'Hara, Federalist Party, with 2,263 votes, which is just north of one-third, and Nathaniel Irish, a constitutional Republican. He got 681 votes, just 11%. It is interesting that there's all of these small pages that have just little pieces of information. 1805, Pennsylvania's 11th Congressional District Special Election. It is somewhat remarkable that we have these things. And also, not very interesting. Final piece of information... Smith took his seat on December 2nd, 1805. Our next article is a person, and of course there are many people that crop up as articles in Wikipedia. This one is Amélie Carette, 1839-1926. Born Amelia Bouvet, 
was a French memoir writer and courtier. There is actually a painting of her from 1868 by Alexander Cabanel. She is the daughter of Colonel Pierre-Auguste Bouvet, who lived from 1809 to 1864, and the grandchild of Rear Admiral Pierre-Francois-Étienne Bouvet de Mazanouve. In 1866, she married the rich politician Jean-Pierre Henri Carret, who lived from 1822 to 1883. Oh, so she was around a lot longer than he was. She was the reader, Latrice, to Empress Eugenie of France, 1864 to 1866, and filled the vacant position of, of Louise Poitelon Dutal as lady-in-waiting in 1866-1870. I would like to, as always, take a brief moment to apologize for my mangled pronunciations of languages I'm not especially familiar with. I did not take French in school, and I've only been to France one time, but that was recently, so I went to Paris and part of Normandy over the summer, last summer. However, I did not pick up an exceptional amount of the French language in the process. In contrast to what was normally the case, she was housed in the Tuileries Palace rather than having her own residence and merely visiting the court during work hours. She was well-liked by the Empress, who often chose her to accompany her on incognito trips around Paris. She was described as bearing a remarkable likeness to the Empress. So she was the empress's uh, wingwoman, I guess you might say. That's what it sounds like to me. They'd run out at night and go to Paris. She is known in history as the author of her memoirs, which described life at the French imperial court of Napoleon III. And there you have one more random article. Let's move on. I always get a little nervous when I click the random article button because I don't know what we're going to get. And often it's, you know, most concern about a topic that I can't even comprehend. But most frequently it's got to do with something abroad that I generally don't know enough about and can't speak the language. Which brings us to Nitta Yoshiaki, who died in 1337. Son of Nitta Yoshisada, 
fought for Emperor Go-Daigo against the Ashikaga at the end of the Kamakura period. He was one of the chief generals at the fortress of Kanagasaki, which fell to the Ashikage. Yoshiaki was killed, and Prince Suneaga captured. This is just a reference out of a History of Japan book, apparently on page 64. I definitely don't know very much about 14th century Japan, but it does sound like there's an interesting story in there somewhere. The additional information here in terms of categories is that this is a um, samurai article. So, I suppose uh, Nita Yoshiaki was a samurai. And there is a article, or I guess a list, that that puts him in, which is 1338 deaths. Even though it does say died 1337. In any case, it's interesting that you can just go to a Wikipedia page that shows everyone in Wikipedia who died in a certain year. I'm just going to click out of curiosity to find out how many people in 1338 are in Wikipedia. The answer to that question is there are 32 people who died in 1338 that have Wikipedia entries. And it looks like on this page is also his father, Nita Yoshisada. So they must have both died in the same conflict. And it says here as well that Prince Tsunenaga passed away. So it sounds like they all had a tough time with that conflict. I think that's everybody on this page that was part of that article. Moving on. We now get another brief article, the Mount Tai Earthquake. The Mount Tai Earthquake was the first recorded earthquake in history. That's pretty fascinating. It occurred at Mount Tai in present-day Shandong Province, China, during the seventh year of the reign of King Fa of the Jia dynasty which places its occurrence at some point between circa 2205 and 1600 BCE. The earthquake was mentioned briefly in the Bamboo Annals. The event has tentatively been dated to 1831 or 1740. So, that's interesting. They had a BCE, by the way. They had a window of 800 years and have it down to two years of possibility of 1831 or 1731. That is 
very interesting. I guess it's just a, you know, simple line of information in another book, the Bamboo Annals. There is a quote here that says, In the seventh reign of King Fa, King died and there was an earthquake in Mount Tai. And that's the extent of the information. It is interesting to think that a long, long time ago, we really only recorded very sparse information when we could. And so there's just entire parts of history that just don't exist anymore. In this case, it's even hard to pinpoint. And today we have Wikipedia, where all sorts of things are stored. Let's see what comes next. Here again we get a very brief touch upon a person. This one is Suppo 2. Suppo II. 835 to 885, was a member of the Soponide family. Engelberga, the wife of Louis II, may have been his sister. He was Count of Parma Asti and Turin. Along with his cousin, Seppo III, he was the chief lay magnate in Italy during Louis' Louis reign. His father was Adalcis I of Spoleto, and his mother is unknown. He himself had four sons, Adalcis II of Spoleto, Arding, Basso, and Wilfred. He also left a daughter, Bertilla, who married Berengar I of Italy. Now, that is significantly more recent than the 18th century BCE. This is the 9th century. And here again, we have very little information. And in this case, a member of a, you know pretty significant family. I mean, these are definitely people of power, or they wouldn't be in Wikipedia at this time. Moving on. Our next random article is music-related. It is a album. The album is Blues for Fred. Blues for Fred is an album by jazz guitarist Joe Pass and was released in 1988. It was recorded as a tribute to singer and dancer Fred Astaire, who died the previous year. After many albums produced by Norman Grants, who sold Pablo to Fantasy Records in 1987, this is Pass's first album with producer Eric Miller. There's a note on reception, which is 
limited to it looks like a quote from a review in uh, All Music, the music website. Pass interprets the music with taste, solid swing, and constant creativity within the bop tradition. His versions of Cheek to Cheek, Night and Day, Lady Be Good, and The Way You Look Tonight in particular are quite enjoyable and make one appreciate the uniqueness of this classic guitarist. Then there is a All About Jazz review, which concluded, quote, While the novelty of Pass's skills had long worn off by now, the talent still remains. Virtuoso is still his crowning achievement, but Blues for Fred is of similar artistic merit. Well, this is certainly something to consider seeking out now that we have discovered it. There's an info card that tells us that it was recorded over a two-day period in 1988 at Fantasy Studios in Berkeley, California. And there is a track listing here. And the only personnel listed on the album is Joe Pass. Perhaps we will learn more about Joe Pass in the future as well. I definitely do like some amount of jazz music. And I'm not very good at expanding my horizons in this area. I've made it a point to purchase a few vinyl records, and I'm kind of slowly, almost one musician at a time, finding my way through different parts of jazz. The last record that I bought was, I think... Speak No Evil by Wayne Shorter. And I actually liked that record quite a lot. Um, that might be one of my favorites. I had read a little bit about Wayne Shorter, and I thought, you know, that he sounded like the kind of musician that I would be interested in listening to. And Speak No Evil is definitely more of like a classic jazz kind of ensemble album. And so it definitely isn't also the breadth of that musician, because I know that Wayne Shorter later on um, got into more and more avant-garde styles of jazz into the 80s, I think. I don't remember exactly, but... His, his earlier work in the more traditional area is still pretty spectacular. He's definitely one of those musicians that... Um, if you've listened to any amount of jazz, you've, you've probably heard him because he played with so many amazing people. In any case, I'm obviously digressing here because I, quite frankly, don't know very much about Joe Pass. And so maybe, maybe we can learn more about him.
if we're interested in going in that direction. We've gotten lucky so far on these articles being relatively short, so we're really banging them out. I think we will, though, have to finish in the near future. I think it tends toward a certain inevitability that if we click the random article button enough, we'll eventually come across a sports person. And sure enough, here we are. Adam Wolnoff, born 24 May 1982, is an Australian former professional rugby league footballer. Wolnoff played as a prop for nine seasons at the Melbourne Storm, Penrith Panthers, and the Newcastle Knights in the NRL. Wolnoff was born in Taree, New South Wales, Australia. He was educated at Taree High School and was 1999 Australian Schoolboys representative. Some additional uh, information too is he was six foot two or is six foot two and weighs about 106 kilograms. Playing career. Wolnoff made his debut in 2002 for his junior club, Newcastle Knights. The game was against New Zealand Warriors on 17 May, coincidentally, his mother's birth date. After six seasons, including one as captain, and 117 games, Wolnoff made the decision to leave and head to the Penrith Panthers on a new three-year deal. After two injury and form-ravaged seasons, the 2009 NRL season was supposed to be his last. Wolnoff announced his retirement on 19 August 2009, effective of his final 2009 NRL game, which was against his old club, Newcastle Knights in round 26, 2009. However, after a year of traveling with his partner, Wolnoff returned to the NRL in 2011. This was made possible by a chance meeting with former teammate Clint Newton in the UK. Newton was playing for Hull Kingston Rovers when the conversation turned to the Melbourne Storm. From this conversation, Wolnoff spoke with Melbourne head coach Craig Bellamy about the possibility of joining Melbourne for the 2011 NRL season. Wolnoff later signed in July 2010 at a Paris hotel, but was encouraged to complete his trip before reporting to training in October 2010. That is the end of his playing career, as the section says, although there is um, some more information apparently 
that he played maybe for a different league. It says the Newcastle Rugby League. In 2012, Wolnoff played for Lakes United Newcastle Rugby Team. Well, that's all very interesting. And of course, there's a minor amount of post-rugby league career information. I remember the last time we did this, we had a baseball player who played for about nine seasons and then uh, had a little career, other information after that, but I had to uh, dig it up a little bit after the fact. Upon retirement, Wolnoff worked in the underground coal mines near Newcastle. Wolnoff was employed for over three years until a desire to return to the sporting industry came about. In 2015, Wolnoff was employed at the Queensland Academy of Sport, working with their world and Olympic athlete in personal development. Career and Education, Welfare, Transitions, and Community Engagement In 2022, and this is obviously most recently, Wolnoff returned to Rugby League, appointed by NRL Victoria as coach of the Victoria Thunderbolts, Jersey Flag Cup team. Now that's super interesting. He had this rugby career that ran for about eight years-ish, maybe ten years, and then... This short stint of working in an underground coal mine. Yeah, for three years. I guess that's, you know, maybe what it's like working in an underground coal mine is you eventually get enough of it and think, oh, maybe I have qualifications somewhere else. What about that ten years I played professional rugby? Maybe there's another way back into that area. Now, there is a career highlight section, but I think that about wraps it up here for our friend Adam Woolnough, or Woolno. W-O-O-L-N-O-U-G-H. Adam, first name. Well, that's about as much randomness and wickiness as I feel like I can stand for one episode. It definitely seems as though we have learned a thing or two during this run of really random topics. Definitely mostly people. We lucked out and didn't have to do any serious math or get stuck with a minor article about a amoeba or some other such small thing that is almost entirely written in a scientific dialect I can't decipher. But we did also get a mountain and an earthquake and a jazz record, which maybe I'll have a chance to listen to. Maybe we can 
all have a listen to that between now and the next time we get together. And once again, I encourage you, dear listener, to consider the possibility of making a small one-time donation to wikipedia.org if you have appreciated your newly acquired knowledge. However unconsciously and subliminally it may have found its way into the archives of your mind. I think we'll leave it here for this episode. I hope you have been adequately rambled to rest with these puzzling thoughts and are not hearing what I am saying right now. However, if for some reason you are conscious at this time, I will leave you with these parting words. Spot Delicate Lunch Learned Short Way Present Whistle Truculent and distance. Thank you again. I am your host, Ryan. Music has been by disparition. And we'll see you in the next episode.